The following content is provided by MIT OpenCourseWare under a Creative Commons license. Additional information about our license and MIT OpenCourseWare in general is available at ocw.mit.edu. So we're, we're shifting gears today. We're going to talk about molecular evolution, i.e., how do we understand how species evolve? How do we understand a lot about ourselves, how human evolution is taking place? Uh, over the last couple hundred thousand years. And traditionally, uh, evolution has been uh, the purview of uh, people who study the morphology of organisms. And when I talk about morphology, obviously I'm talking about shape and form. And by comparing organisms, starting already uh, 250 years ago, one began to, be, to develop hierarchies of how different organisms on the planet are related to one another. You've seen this undoubtedly in high school biology. This is the study of phylogeny. And phylogeny has traditionally been um, figured out by comparing the, the phenotypes, the morphologies of adults, sometimes embryonic development, and on that basis, attempting to extrapolate back in evolutionary time about the relatedness of different organisms, uh, one to the other. And in so doing, uh, one has been able to create, for example, family trees. Here's uh, something that Charles Darwin already was interested in, the <clears throat> various kinds of finches on the Galapagos Islands off Peru in the um, Pacific. And here one is beginning to uh, organize um, <clears throat> different bird species on the basis of whether they're more closely or less closely related to one another, and to draw pedigrees which one imagines describe how they evolved one from the other i.e. organisms which are si very similar to one another, must be more closely related evolutionarily, and conversely, those that appear very differently from one another, morphologically, must be uh, far <coughs> more distantly related uh, uh, to, to one another. In fact, these kinds of morphologic uh, extrapolations can be very misleading. So here, for example, are two kinds of eyes. The top eye is a Drosophila eye which, to state the obvious, looks a lot different from our eyes, which is the, the, uh, the chordate eyes shown in the bottom. Totally different. Our rods and cones face backwards. The Drosophila arthropod eyes, the, the, uh, the light sensors face forward. Everything is different. And on the basis of that, you would say that these two organisms are independent evolutionary inventions, that they've been invented on two occasions, and that they have no relatedness one to the other at all. But I will tell you an extraordinary experiment. You can take uh, the, uh, there's a master uh, gene in, in, that controls eye development in the uh, fly, in Drosophila. It's called eyeless. If you knock it out, then the, then the eye doesn't develop uh, at all. And you can take out of the mouse a, uh, what apparently is a related gene called small eye. So the fly gene is called eyeless. The mouse gene is called small eye. And you can put the small eye gene into the Drosophila um, <clears throat> genome in a fly which lacks the, uh, the eyeless gene. So here we're talking about two different genes. The fly gene is called eyeless. The mammalian gene, at least in mouse, is called small eye. If you knock out this gene in the fly genome and replace it with this gene, you get a perfectly normal Drosophila eye. It's extraordinary. Or you can do the following. You can arrange it so that the mouse small eye gene is expressed ectopically. 
when I say ectopically, that I mean it's expressed in the wrong place at the wrong time. So you can do the following experiment. In a fly uh, genome, you can arrange it so that the mouse small eye gene becomes expressed on one of the extremities of the fly, one of the legs of the fly. And now, on one of the uh, extremities of the fly, an ectopic eye will develop, looks just like a Drosophila eye, but its development is programmed by the mouse small eye gene. What I'm telling you is that these two genes are totally interchangeable, that they are effectively indistinguishable from one another functionally. They have some sequence relatedness, but uh, in terms of the way they program development, they are, are effectively equivalent. And what this means is that the progenitor of these two genes must have already existed at the time that the flies and we diverged, which six or 700 million years ago. And in the intervening 600 million years, these genes have been totally unchanged, i.e., once the gene was developed, evolution could not tinker with it and begin to change it in different ways, ostensibly because such tinkering would render these genes uh, dysfunctional and thereby would inactivate them, thereby depriving the organism of a critical sensory organ. So here we have an example, a dramatic example, of how morphology misleads us. Here we have an example of where we would say that these two eyes, the two eyes I've shown you here, are so different from one another that they must, by necessity, be independent evolutionary inventions. But in fact, uh, genetics tells us, and these gene-swapping experiments tell us, that the two eyes um, descend from a common ancestral eye, a, a prototypical eye, whose precise uh, morphology we, we can't discern anymore. And so we begin to realize that if we really want to understand evolution and we really want to understand phylogeny, phylogeny being how the species are related to one another, we have to go to the DNA. And we have to begin to look not at phenotype, but we have to look instead at genotype. The Darwinian model is pretty much like this, the survival of the fittest. And when I say that, <clears throat> we imagine that we have here a genetically heterogeneous group of uh, organisms within a species, and this, this number of individuals in the species could be a uh, hundred, it could be a million. This particular individual, by chance, acquires an ev a mutation or an advantageous allele through some genetic alteration. This genotype renders this organism more fit, phenotypically, select has a selective advantage, and consequently, over extended periods of time, which may be thousands or even millions of years, the descendants of the organism bearing this allele now have advantage, have a greater reproductive advantage, survival advantage, compared with the other individuals in the same species, and therefore the representation of this mutant allele in the gene pool of the species becomes expanded. When I say gene pool, I'm talking about the common shared set of genes within a species, such as within the human uh, species. And so eventually, the descendants of this organism um, or the, the descendants of an organism bearing this allele now uh, become overrepresented in the population because they're more fit. And then there can be another succession, i.e. there can be yet other mutations occurring subsequently, once again uh, favoring the selective outgrowth of an individual bearing this allele or this allele. And in addition, there can be the process of what one calls speciation. That is to say, if uh, some parts of the species live in one place and other parts of the species live in another place geographically, 
they may no longer interbreed. And as a consequence, and because of the fact they're under different selective pressures, they may begin to diverge from one another, if evolutionarily speaking, because they're no longer actively exchanging genes with one another. And as a consequence, one can have new species arising. And one believes this happens over slow, slowly over evolutionary time. Um, but it does arise, and to the extent it does, one eventually ends up with organisms here and here which can no longer effectively interbreed with one another. That is to say, they become um, genetically so different from one another that any hybrids formed between them are, in fact, uh, uh, sterile for one reason or another, if they're at all interested in, uh, in breeding uh, with one another to begin with. And what this means is that we can begin to trace how closely or distantly related species are to one another simply by asking how closely or similarly uh, related are their DNA sequences. If uh, distantly related organisms have very dis distantly related sequences and closely related organisms must have sequences which are very similar to one another. And over evolutionary time, there's a so-called mutational clock where, one, where each species accumulates a certain number of point mutations, base substitutions in its DNA per million years. And, and the longer the two species are separated from one another, the greater will be the difference in their se sequence diversity. And on that simple basis, one can begin to construct evolutionary trees of, for example, the entire uh, cellular life on the planet. And here's such an evolutionary tree where what is being compared is the ribosomal RNA sequences, i.e., the, uh, the, the small ribosomal RNA. Remember, ribosomes have two subunits, small and large. In the case of prokaryotes, it's, it's 16S RNA, that is its sedimentation rate. In the case of mammals, it's 18S. In both cases, these are small ribosomal RNA subunits. The ribosome was only invented on one occasion during the evolution of life on the planet. So one can begin to compare, since all cellular life forms have ribosomes, one can ask how similar or dissimilar are the various uh, sequences encoding these small ribosomal RNA subunits. And on the basis of that, one has concluded that there actually are three branches of cellular life on the planet. The bacteria indicated here, this is not such a great Xerox, where you see a whole series of different kinds of bacteria indicated on this tree. Sorry about the, 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 uh, the, the poor reproduction. Here there's a dashed line indicating that we're talking, uh, there's a second kingdom in the middle here indicated by what are called archaea. And the archaea are also, from our point of view, prokaryotes, but they're not bacteria. They are a single cell life form. They're often found in unusual um, uh, situations, uh, for instance, in thermal vents in the bottom of the ocean floor. Some of them are able to stand high salt. Some of them are able to stand um, high, high temperature like uh, thermophilus, thermoproteus, and so forth. And these, their ribosomal RNAs are so different from those of bacteria that they've been placed in their own separate uh, kingdom. And finally, here are the eukaryotes all over here. These are all eukaryote, uh, eukaryotic cells starting here. And we, our cells, seem to be slightly more closely related to those of the archaea, if you follow this ribosomal sequences, than they are to the actual bacteria. So there's actually two major uh, prokaryotic life forms on the planet. 
the first living organism? Well, if you begin to try to <coughs> look back in the geological record, it looks like the first living cellular life forms existed already 3 to 3.5 billion years ago, not so long after the planet was formed, which was between 4.3 and 4.5 billion years ago. And here's the whole eukaryotic tree. And if we look at the eukaryotic trees, remembering here we're starting at 3.5 billion years ago, and we're using this evolutionary clock to determine relatedness, then we see a whole series of single-cell eukaryotes. Here their names are. These are, uh, these are protozoan, eukaryotic protozoan. Here's amoeba. Here are slime molds. Here are ciliates. We're still at single-cell organisms. Finally, we get to multicellular organisms, plants, fungi, and animals. And so all animals on the planet are a relatively recent invention. All animals, all of the metazoa, are just uh, on this very small branch. And we know that this very small branch started around 600, 650 million years ago, maybe 700 million years ago. And, start, and that was the time, roughly speaking, when we and flies last had our common ancestor. Otherwise, to state the obvious, we and flies are very different. The fact that the gene for encoding the eye has been conserved so faithfully over an enormous evolutionary period of time indicates something else, and that is certain genes can evolve progressively over a long period of time because they don't encode vital functions, or they may even be sequences between genes that don't encode phenotype at all. Imagine, for example, we have a situation where here we have a, a gene which encodes a vital function like the eye. Here's another gene um, that encodes another function, um, I don't know, a leg. And here we have intergenic sequences. After all, as you have learned by now, more than 96% of the DNA in our genome doesn't encode proteins and probably isn't even responsible for regulating genes. So these sequences right in here can mutate freely during the course of evolution without having a deleterious effect on the phenotype of the organism. There's no evolutionary pressure to constrain the evolution of these genes. But if this gene over here encodes an eye, and if this gene has been optimized in its sequence early in the course of evolution, then any subsequently occurring mutations will compromise its function, and therefore there's enormous selective pressure to eliminate any organism which has begun to tinker with the sequence of this gene by changing its sequence. Here, in stark contrast, there's no such selective pressure. The organism, that is, can tinker at will with this. I don't mean literally that the organism is able to tinker with its own DNA sequences, but the hand of evolution can change these sequences in here at will without having any effect on the uh, viability of the organism on its selective or Darwinian fitness. And therefore, such mutations in these in these sequences are neutral mutations. They have no effect on phenotype, and uh, they will not be eliminated from the gene pool. Again here, mutations in these vital critical genes will be eliminated from the gene pool. So that's uh, another one of the principles of molecular evolution we want to talk about. And if you follow these principles, we can not only uh, do draw evolutionary trees like this, which have a grand scope, a scale of 3.5 billion years, we can talk, for example, about um, how... Different kinds of bears are related to one another and um, on the basis, once again, of their DNA sequence. Or, if you want, we can even look at how different kinds of domesticated animals are related to one another. This is kind of a fun undertaking. Look at this. Why is it fun? Well, it's, it's kind of an amusing idea. How often were cows domesticated during the history of, of, of humanity? How often were sheep domesticated? 
pigs, water buffaloes, and horses. And what you see here is that cattle were domesticated on two occasions, probably once uh, in, in Western Asia, the Middle East, and once in Eastern Asia. Sheep were domesticated twice. All modern sheep fall into these two families here. Obviously, they share a common ancestor some way back, but most uh, uh, sheep uh, either fall here or here. Pigs seem to have been domesticated twice, once over here and once over here. Water buffaloes twice. Horses are very confusing. It looks like they were domesticated on several occasions because they're all over the map. They're not two clusters of, of closely related uh, varieties like here and here. Um, what others? Dogs. Uh, that's recently, uh, I forget what the number is for dogs, once. Dogs were domesticated once, probably the earliest domestication, about 100,000 years ago. They all have one common radiating tree. Here we have two radiating trees, one cluster over here, one cluster over here, with sheep, pigs, and so forth. Um, so we can even, um, so you can learn an enormous amount about even the history of, of agriculture by looking at these um, kinds of uh, uh, DNA pedigree. Here's some other interesting principles. Mitochondrial DNA passes always from the mother. So when a fertilized egg is formed, dad gives uh, his chromosomes, but he doesn't donate for any, uh, doesn't donate any uh, mitochondrial DNA. I remember visiting a friend in North Carolina in 1974, and he was looking at the mitochondrial DNA of mules and when you breed a horse, uh, a horse and a donkey, what do you get out? You get a mule out, or what happens if you do it the other way? What happens, uh, what happens if the father is a, uh, is a horse and the mother is a donkey? It's a hinny. It's actually called a hinny. Um, so you, there's two ways of breeding. Who, who's the, the, so there's two ways of doing it. And the question is now, do the offspring... Did the, and by the way, it's not so nice to have the father being uh, the horse and the mother being the mule. Why? Because mom isn't used to carrying an embryo that's much larger than she's adapted to. The other way is fine, because then she can carry a small embryo. But if dad comes from a much larger species, then the fetus that, that, that the, uh, that the uh, <coughs> female uh, donkey must carry is larger than her womb is really evolved to carry. So you don't often see these hinnies around because um, they uh, cause <clears throat> great difficulty at birth. In any case, why did I get into this digression? Glad I asked that. The question was, where did the mitochondrial DNA come? 1974, this was still a hot question. And it turned out that the mitochondrial DNA in both the mules and the hinnies came always from mom. There was not a, a trace of mitochondrial DNA from the father. And uh, as a consequence, this begins to cause us to realize where our mitochondrial DNA comes from. So his mitochondrial DNA comes from his mother, his maternal grandmother, her mother, her mother before her, and so forth. And the same for each one of you. And what this means is that um, if you look at a pedigree like this, and for example, uh, here we have uh, a mother and a father. Girls are always round, boys are square. And here you see the mitochondrial DNA is donated to all of the children. But the fact is that these boys, when they mate, when they have offspring, they will no longer pass along her mitochondrial DNA. So it will be lost. And the only way the mitochondrial DNA can be transmitted is through one of her daughters to in turn have daughters. Here you see the situation where almost all of her uh, mitochondrial DNA is lost except for this 
female descendant who once again passes it on to her um, sons and daughters. Only the daughters again can transmit mitochondrial DNA. And there is equity in life. It doesn't often, often happen. Jack Kennedy said life is unfair, but um, sometimes it's reasonably fair. So here's the Y chromosome. Here's the Y counterpart. Keep in mind that the, uh, uh, the Y chromosome um, <clears throat> only passes from father to son to father to son. And exactly the same dynamics apply. And importantly, and this is critical for our thinking now, neither the Y chromosome nor mitochondrial DNA recombines with another chromosome. And therefore, the complexities of diploid Mendelian genetics are obviated. So when you're looking at, for example, the inheritance of mitochondrial DNA, you can look at the, the pure results of accumulated mutations. You don't have to worry about crossing over. You don't have to worry about exchange of portions of a gene between two homologous chromosomes. It doesn't happen with the Y chromosome because there's only one of them in the cell, and it doesn't happen with the mitochondrial DNA because there's no other DNA for it to uh, equilibrate with. As a consequence, uh, we can begin to think about what happens uh, with um, mitochondrial DNA and uh, Y chromosomal DNA in young and old species. So let's talk about a recently formed species. And let's say we have a young species down here, below the, the, uh, the illustration, and now this species, which has recently come into existence for whatever reason, hangs around for the next couple million years. And while it hangs around, there will be random mutations which strike the genomes of individual members of that species. And therefore, the longer the life of the species as a whole, the more genetically diverse will become the individuals in that species. And therefore, this species will grow to have more and more genetic diversity just because of the random stochastic mutations that accumulate in different people's genomes in the course of, of uh, the life of this species over millions of years. Again, keep in mind that the vast majority of these accumulated mutations will be neutral mutations which will not affect phenotype and therefore uh, they will not be eliminated by Darwinian selection. And, uh, and many of these neutral mutations, which have no effect on, on uh, organismic um, fitness, but are simply uh, evolutionarily neutral, are sometimes called polymorphisms. The term polymorphisms, morph is once again morphology, derives from the fact that species tend to be polymorphic. We don't all have blonde hair. We don't all have brown eyes. We as a species have a great variability in phenotype. We're polymorphic. And yet having black hair and having blonde hair and having red hair, none of those is considered mutant. None of those is considered pathological. I.e., among the group of normal phenotypes, there's a whole series of different gradations. And these are considered normal gradations in, in um, <clears throat> phenotype. But at the genetic level, we talk about polymorphisms in the same sense. Genetically uh, distinct nucleotide sequences, which again do, are not pathological, they don't create a disadvantageous phenotype, and as a consequence, uh, they're once again not selected against. Now look what happens over here. Here we have great genetic diversity, but what will happen is, for one reason or another, only a small subset of the individuals constituting this species will turn out to be the ancestors of the successor species. Here's the next species that arises. And why will these just be um, the ancestors? Well, everybody else could get killed off through some plague. They might get killed off by somebody going out and, and purposively killing them, 
or it might just be that a meteor comes down and wipes all these guys out, and these are the only ones in here from this small subset of the original species who end up surviving and who end up becoming the precursors, the ancestors of the new species. And now this young species arises and once again undergoes a period of diversification. And what we have, therefore, is a diversification and then a collapse of genetic diversity. Here, this species, because it came from a small group, is, is initially rather, uh, rather homogeneous genetically, but with the passage of evolutionary time, once again, there's evolutionary diversification. So an older species actually ends up being much more genetically diverse than does a younger species. If you look at two chimpanzees living on opposite sides of the same hill in West Africa, they are genetically far more distantly related to one another than any one of us by a factor of 10 to 15. Two chimpanzees, they look exactly the same, they have the same peculiar habits, uh, but they're genetically far more distantly related than we are to one another, than I am to any one of you, or any one of you is to one another. And what does that mean? It means that, roughly speaking, the species of chimpanzees is at least 10 or 15 times older than our species are. We're a young species. Chimpanzees probably uh, first speciated three or four million years ago. If the paleontological record is, is, um, is, uh, is accurate, paleontology is the study of old, dusty, Bones, so you can begin to imagine when um, chimpanzee bones become recognizable in, um, in, in, in the earth. So a paleontologist says um, that uh, <coughs> chimps are that old, and it, it begins to suggest that our species is only about 200,000 years old at the oldest. Now you say 200,000 years is a long time. But it isn't so long, because I started out this discussion talking about 3.5 billion years, 3.5 times 10 to the ninth, and now I'm talking about 2 times 10 to the fourth. Is that right? 2 times 10? No, 2 times 10 to the fifth, excuse me. 2 times 10 to the fifth. Four orders of magnitude difference. So that means that our species, we went through a bottleneck about 200, 150, 200,000 years ago, and as a consequence, because that is so recent, we haven't had a chance to actually acquire much genetic diversity. We're actually very closely related to one another, although if to talk to people, you think we're all very distantly related to one another. Here's another interesting um, notion, which also figures in, and that is what happens in the genetics of small populations. So here we start out with uh, eight uh, individuals, and let's assume for a moment that this population has a steady size, i.e. it doesn't increase or decrease over the course of uh, several generations. And what that means is that each couple will, on average, uh, leave behind uh, two children. And those two children will breed, and each of them will, in, uh, couples in the successor population, will, will leave behind uh, two children. And what you see already in such small populations is that, for example, um, uh, this, this male here has two girls, and right away, to the extent he had an interesting Y chromosome, that Y chromosome was lost from the gene pool. This girl here had an interesting mitochondrial DNA, and right away that's lost because she has, just has two boys. And what you see is that in very rapid order, 
in small populations, there's a homogenization of the uh, genetic complement, just because uh, alleles are lost through what's called genetic drift. And as a consequence, very rapidly, there, there becomes homozygosity at many loci in very small populations. A real-life situation um, is, comes from um, mutiny on the bounty, where Fletcher Christian ends up getting uh, shipwrecked on what island was it? Pit- Pitcairn Island, yes. Pitcairn Island, which is somewhere in the South Pacific or the South Atlantic, I forget where. Anyhow, today, if you go to Pitcairn Island, almost everybody is called, almost everybody has a family named Christian being his descendants. Why? Was it that he was more studly and fecund than everybody else? Probably not. What probably happened was, in the, the same dynamics that dictates the homogenization of Y chromosomes, dictates the, the homogenization of family names. So if you isolate people in a small uh, <clears throat> demographic isolate, like a, a, an island in the middle of the ocean, after, over a period of generations, roughly equal to, I think, twice the number of individuals in the steady-state population, everybody will have the same family name because the other family names will, by chance, in a small population, just be lost. Uh, On my father's side of the family, I have uh, hundreds of cousins with my family name. And on my mother's side of the family, not a single one, just as as an example of, of this kind of trait. Now, keep in mind that this evolutionary diversification can also affect the Y chromosome. So, therefore there are different Y chromosomes across the face of the, uh, of the planet, which can be distinguished not because they, are, they are, are better or lesser Y chromosomes in terms of the phenotype of maleness, but because they've accumulated polymorphisms over a period of time. They may be single nucleotide polymorphisms, but these single mu- nucleotide polymorphisms can be used to determine how closely or distantly related are individuals to one another. Let's look at the mitochondrial DNA of women in Western Europe. And if you look at the mitochondrial DNA of women in Western Europe, you find that they only have, how many different things there are? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. There are seven basic types of mitochondrial DNA that are found in uh, Western and Northern European women. And what that means is inescapably that those uh, people who, uh, who live in modern day Europe descend from seven women who had these respective mitochondrial DNA sequences. When did those seven ancestors live? Well, we don't really know, probably um, ten, uh, probably between 10 and 15,000 years ago. But the Western European population descends from a stunningly small number of founders. <clears throat> now, clearly, uh, DNA sequencing is terrific, but it's not good enough to know the names of the, those women. So... I can tell you that they were not named Velda and Jasmine. Anyhow, but here you can see, here you can, now obviously these women in turn were related to one another. You can ask, uh, you can do another kind of question. How much are all of our mitochondrial DNAs related to one another? How distantly related are they to one another, um, given the rate of evolution of mitochondrial DNA sequences? And if you ask that question, the answer is that we all had a common ancestress who lived about 150,000 years ago. All of us trace our mitochondrial DNA to her. Does that mean that there was only one woman alive then? She's called mitochondrial Eve. Again, we don't know her name. Does that mean there was only one woman alive then? Well, it doesn't mean that at all because of what I, what I just told you. In small populations, 
the proto-human population. I've just told you that, that certain uh, polymorphisms die out because of this genetic drift, because of these stochastic events. And so the founding human population could have had 20, 50, or 100 individuals in it, but one woman's mitochondrial DNA happened because of these accidents to, to dominate so that now all of us have the same, uh, have, have, are the descendants of her mitochondrial DNA. Clearly, in the intervening time since 150,000 years ago, accumulated mutations have, have altered subtly the mitochondrial DNA genome so that there's polymorphisms and so that one can make, uh, one can draw phylogenies of different kinds of, of, uh, D, of, <clears throat> of, of mitochondrial DNA and look at the relatedness between different clades, different groups of women in uh, modern-day Europe. 70 percent of Finnish men in Finland have a Y chromosome polymorphism that is otherwise virtually unheard of in the rest of uh, Europe. Seventy percent of Finnish men. Now, what does that mean? Well, to me, it means that those seventy percent of Finnish men descend from a common ancestor, a male who lived around, if you look at uh, the the sequences, lived around two or three thousand years ago and who for some reason became the ancestor of all the people living in modern uh, Finland. That's extraordinary. There are four million people living in Finland today, and the males all have their inherit their Y chromosome from that man. We don't know exactly where he lived, but obviously the modern Finnish population descends from a very small founder group who came into what we call modern Finland um, relatively recently, maybe uh, two, two and a half thousand years ago, and thereafter did not freely interbreed with the rest of the European population. How do we know that? Because that Y chromosomal polymorphism is not present elsewhere. It's only present in Finland. So it was a genetic and uh, obviously linguistic isolate. So where do we all come from, all of us human beings? How closely or distantly related are we to one another? Here's, um, here's a, uh, a measurement of the distances between um, different mitochondrial DNAs from different... Uh, branches of humanity. And what you see is something really quite uh, extraordinary and stunning. Here you see that the people, the non-African lineages here and here are actually relatively closely related to one another. But if you look at the people who live in Africa down here, there is enormous genetic diversity. Look how far these evolutionary branches reach back. Look how long these are. The, the distance of these branches, of these roots, determines how far, how distantly related these individuals are one to the other. And on the basis of that, and on the basis of a lot of other auxiliary genetic information, we can conclude that Africa was the site where genetic diversification was generated during, the, during human evolution. And that what happened as a consequence of that diversification is starting over the last 40, 50, 60,000 years ago, different subpopulations, small isolated subpopulations migrated out of Africa, took a very small subset of the polymorphisms with them, and became the founder populations of a whole variety of different um, uh, modern-day populations. These uh, populations here are, are uh, largely uh, mongoloid. These populations here are largely Caucasian. And here we see that, that in Africa there's enormous genetic diversity, and by the way, all the genes that are present here, the alleles that are present here, can also be found in Africa, but in relatively small proportions in Africa. And we know this kind of diversity exists both for the mitochondrial DNA 
And here's for the Y chromosomal DNA. Again, we look for polymorphisms. Uh, and this is not a very good overhead. Again, the, the reproduction was not very good. But what I'm showing you is that the, the evolutionary, the, the depth of these evolutionary branches is enormous in Africa, yet in uh, other pl parts of um, the globe, people are much more closely related to one another. Some people uh, argue on the basis of the genetic relatedness of, of Western and Northern Europeans that uh, the modern European population is largely descended from about 20 couples that moved into Europe about 10,000 years ago, 8 to 10,000 years ago, at the time when agriculture was introduced into Europe from the Middle East, just on the basis of looking at these uh, Y chromosomal um, sequences. And so we can begin to draw maps of how we, we uh, human beings uh, arose. Even though we are uh, reasonably distantly related to one another on this graph, keep in mind that we as a species are enormously close to one another because of the, the youth of, of this, uh, of our species. Uh, if you look um, at our, uh, the, the time of this diversification, again, was probably sometime between 80 and 100,000 years ago. So how did it all happen? We can even figure out the history of humanity by beginning to look at these different kinds of polymorphisms. A long time ago, individuals went out from uh, um, Africa, maybe starting 100,000 years ago, maybe more recently, and went across the southern rim of Eurasia. And we know already, we find um, archaeological remains of Aborigines in Australia between 40 and 60,000 years ago. And by the way, those people are very distantly related to the rest of us, having left and not intermingled with the rest of humanity for a very long period of time. There were Aust Aborigines in Australia already at a time when our ancestors, or to the extent our, we had ancestors in Europe, were still battling the Neanderthals, who only died out 30,000 years ago. You may know, by the way, you may have read in the newspaper, about a month ago they discovered skeletons of very small people on an island in Indonesia. In fact, those were probably not even Homo sapiens. Those were probably a precursor species because we know over the, the last two million years there have been hominoids, look like human beings, but are, are precursors, who migrated out of, out of um, Africa, who dispersed throughout uh, Asia, and who eventually became extinct so that the only modern-day humans that exist are the descendants of this out-migration that began about 100,000 years ago. We know that about 15,000 years ago, some of these people ended up going over here and crossing in four different waves of migration, you can see it from the DNA, into the Western Hemisphere. Amerindians, that is American Indians, Native Americans, are genetically rather homogeneous. Why? Because they all descend from very small founder populations that came into uh, the Western Hemisphere relatively recently. And there's enormous uh, genetic homogeneity among different subgroups of individuals here in, um, in South America. Speaking of South America, if you look in um, some parts of Venezuela, what you find is that the mitochondrial DNA is largely of Indian origin, but the Y chromosomal DNA is largely of European origin. So what happens there? That's a testimonial to the tragic fate of the Indians where the conquistadors from Spain came in, killed all the men, and took all the women to be their brides. How else could you explain the fact that there's no uh, Indian Y chromosomes? There's all, uh, there is instead only um, <clears throat> uh, European Y chromosomes. Um, and uh, here you can begin to see uh, 
what happened here in Europe as well. 40,000 years ago, people started trickling into Europe. And they hung around there for the next uh, 30,000 years, pretty much on their own. The remnants of those people who came in, we know from DNA, are the Basques who live in northern Spain, who speak, by the way, a non-Indo-European language. They're the relics of this initial settlement by modern humans of Europe starting 40,000 years ago. And they had the continent for themselves for the next um, uh, 30,000 years until um, this new founder population came in about uh, 10,000 10, years ago. Here's the names of the girls who were in that group. Ursula and Katrine and Xenia. Tara, Jasmine, and Velda, and um, they became the modern agriculturalists and swamped out the people who were there 40,000 years ago who now only survive as a relic population. Here's a fun story I like to tell each year, and it's about the Cohen Y chromosome. And you'll, you'll see what an amusing story this is just from genetics. Now, the name Cohen in Hebrew means a high priest, and you've heard people named... Cohen. It's, it's, it's not such an uncommon name among the Jews. And it says in the Bible, in Genesis and Exodus, that all the high priests in the Bible are the descendants of Aaron, the brother of Moses. And it's also been the practice for the last 3,000 years that the only person who can become, a, the only male who can become a Cohen is the son of, of a Cohen. In other words, uh, you cannot be adopted into a family and acquire the name Cohen. And if that's all true, and if the Bible is true, and, and Aaron lived uh, 3,000 years ago, whatever his name was, then it should be the case that all male Cohens should have the same Y chromosome, right? Because they all descend, their family name is Cohen, they only could get it from their father, they could only get their Y chromosome from their father, so they should all have the same Y chromosome. Of course, you say that can't really be the case, because we know in this country, in this country, between 5 and 10% of people on average are sending Father's Day cards to the wrong person. What does that mean? Non-paternity. When you do genetic counseling of families these days, uh, one of the strictures is that you never tell the family if the children have uh, genetic uh, polymorphisms that don't match that of the person whom they think is their father. They don't look like the, they don't look like the person whom they regard as father, but that was always assumed to be a role of the genetic dice. So well, how is that relevant? Well, let's talk about this descent from Aaron, who lived 3,000 years ago. We're talking about the Y chromosome being passed from one generation to the next, just like the family name. So what happened, what would happen if sometime over the last 3,000 years, Mrs. Cohen had a dalliance, had an affair with a television repairman, or the milkman, or the mailman, and never told Mr. Cohen? The Y chromosome, which her son thought he was getting from dad, wouldn't be coming from dad. It would be coming from this other, uh, the milkman, or the mailman, and it wouldn't be a Cohen Y chromosome unless, by chance, the mailman or the milkman also happened to be a Cohen. Could happen, but the chances are, roughly speaking, uh, Cohens are only 4% of all Jews, so the chances are against that happening. Okay, so they did this experiment, and this is really astounding experiment. They went 
the story is they went to a beach in Tel Aviv. I don't know whether they actually did that or not. And they picked up, they picked 100 male Cohens who were Ashkenazi. Ashkenazi means their ancestors came from uh, Central Europe. Over here. And they picked up 100 Sephardi Cohens. And the Sephardi Cohens come from Spain, North Africa, Egypt, uh, uh, Yemen, Iraq, Iran, uh, Uzbekistan, Central Asia. And the last time that the Iraqi Cohens and the uh, uh, Ashkenazi Cohens were interbreeding was about 500 BC, at the time of the Babylonian exile. So they've been apart a long time. And they looked at their Y chromosomes. And what they found was that 70% of the Y chromosomes of these male Cohens, 70% of the Cohens shared the same Y chromosome. Well, the same Y chromosome was present only in 15% of non-Cohen Israeli Jews. Now think about that for a second. 70% of these men had the same Y chromosome. Uh, of course, they didn't know they had the same Y chromosome. All they knew is that they had the same family name. And what that means, inescapably, is that over a period of two or 3,000 years, it, it was hard to trace with exactitude when the common male ancestor lived, over a period of two or 3,000 years, somehow the milkman and the mailman stayed away from Mrs. Cohen. Or Mrs. Cohen was unusually virtuous. Because keep in mind, any single affair with the milkman or the mailman over 3,000 years, which is probably the time of divergence, would have broken this chain of inheritance. Any single incidence of non-paternity. It's really an astounding story, and it's hard to, there can be no artifact to it. There's, there's no bias in it. It's, it's no other way of explaining it. And you can begin to find similar stories of families in England where males are tenth cousins of one another. They have the same family name, and they also have the same Y chromosome. The most amusing uh, commentary on this stems from a tribe that lives in uh, southern uh, Africa, and these people are called Lemba. L-E-M-B-A. And, and the, the uh, myth of the Lemba is that they descend from Jews who came down from the north, Jewish traders. So just for the hell of it, some geneticists went down and drew blood from the male Lembas. And there's four castes of Lembas. There's the ruling class, there's the, the warriors, there's the farmers, and maybe the merchants. I don't know. And what they found was that all members of the, almost all members of the ruling caste among the Lemmas had the same Y chromosome, and the Y chromosome had exactly the same polymorphisms as the Cohen Y chromosome. No one in the other three, no males in the other three castes had, or very few had, had otherwise this uh, Y chromosomal polymorphism. Go figure. I don't know what's going on. Now, did those people look Jewish? Well, they looked like everybody else around them because if there was a Mr. Cohen who came down there three or four hundred years ago and married in, he obviously married one of the local population. And there were no other people around uh, from coming in from the north to marry to. So that 99% of the males in this ruling caste who have the Cohen Y chromosome, 99% of their genes come from the local population. The only thing they inherited from Mr. Cohen was the Y chromosome. Where else would they get their genes from? There wasn't a massive migration from the Middle East down to the Lemba tribes. Probably just one man came down selling trinkets or who knows what, television sets or, or VCRs, sometime over the last three or 400 years. And somehow, for reasons that we have no idea, he became the um, ancestor of this caste of people in this tribe in the middle of Africa. 
And so you have stories that you begin to pick up which are stranger than fiction. Some of the weirdest stories that you've ever heard of um, in your life. Imagine having 3,000 years of uninterrupted transmission from, uh, without a single case of non-paternity. It didn't happen all the cases because I didn't say 100% of the Cohen men had it. On 30% of the occasions, there must have been some snipping of this chain of uh, transmission. And keep in mind that this chain of transmission happened over a period of enormous political and, um, uh, and, and upheaval over the last 3,000 years. The Middle East and Europe and North Africa have not been tranquil places over that period of time. Enormous population dispersal and, and, and confusion and replacement. And yet we now begin to look, by looking at the DNA, we can begin to see all kinds of really interesting things. Next, uh, uh, on Friday, Eric is going to talk with you, I believe on Monday as well. And then I'll be here next Wednesday. And Wednesday we're going to talk about a related topic, which is how do all, how do these human genetic differences have implications for the way we think about uh, one another and uh, the way that we will develop. See you then a week from today.